following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. We're going to turn our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel again, please, in the end of chapter 10 this time. All right, Matthew chapter 10 is our portion of Scripture this evening that we're looking at. and trust that you have a Bible there and are able to turn in the passage to follow along as we read at the end of chapter 10. Uh, we are somewhere uh, in the 20s, uh, actually not t- quite uh, totally the end here, but um, we'll take it up at uh, verse 23. We began to look at the topic of persecution in this passage. Remember the context. It's what we call the Kingdom Commission. The Kingdom Commission is where the Lord has the 12 disciples to uh, go to the nation of Israel, not to Samaria, not to the Gentiles, not anywhere else, and to preach to them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They are to repent. The audience is to repent. And uh, to authenticate those messengers, they have some um, miracles that they can do. They can uh, cast out demons Uh, heal people who are sick, even raise folks from the dead. And so they are to go about doing that. But in the process of doing that, the Lord says uh, persecutions are going to arise. So there there is the uh, danger of the mission, the heading that we looked at last time, the dangers of the mission. We'll come to the blessings of the mission in a moment. But the dangers are here in verses 16 through 39. If you look at verse 23, it says, When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So the persecutions will continue unabated, and they will be unable to complete this kingdom commission. And we find a similar thing today. As I said, many folks have suggested that all the world needs to be evangelized before the Lord returns. That's not true. There's no unfulfilled prophecy that has to happen at this point, and uh, in fact, there are severe uh, forces against evangelism and witness and mission throughout the world that are trying to prevent that very thing from happening, and I think that principle here is uh, true uh, in a wider scale, although again, this is a different commission than what we're talking about today with the Great Commission. And the Lord says in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. Uh, In terms of persecution, if they persecute one, the the teacher, they're going to persecute the students as well, the followers, if you will. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. I'll just pause there for a moment. And uh, just go back and just comment. Uh, the Kingdom Commission, as I said, was not destined to be finished, and neither will the Great Commission be finished before the Lord returns. But that should not be due to our own laziness. In other words, the Great Commission should be incomplete only to the extent that persecution prevents it from being completed. Uh, it should not be incomplete because we're lazy, scared, uh, fearful, and, and that sort of thing. The Great Commission can be done quite freely in our own context, and we should do it until persecution stops us from doing that uh, as a church and as individuals. 
So uh, that Great Commission has got to go on. Any incompletion is, as I say, the result of persecution and rejection. But gospel work is never-ending, isn't it? Never-ending task. It has never-ending enemies, and it's also never-ending because you have uh, always new people being born. And so there's no end of supply of people who need to know Christ and need to be evangelized. As many as are born every year, that's how many need to be reborn every year. Of course, many of them will neglect that call of God. But be assured that those enemies of the gospel will be sorry that they did not listen to it. And even worse, they will be culpable for preventing others from hearing the message of the gospel. So then in 24 through 26, uh, basically the title of that little section is Like Teacher, Like Student. Like Teacher, Like Student. Jesus tells the 12 disciples that they are not above him. He was going to be persecuted, so would they. The religious leaders would call Jesus the devil, so they would certainly not hesitate to call his followers little devils. Uh, Is it not true today that as well? Some people are even calling Christians evil. That's all to be expected, and we're not to fear those kinds of people. We just carry on. And eventually they will be exposed for what they are. Let me see 26. It says, Nothing is covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. So they will be exposed. The secrets of the hearts will be exposed, and they won't be able to hide that in the final judgment and perhaps even before that. Some sins... Some men's sins are evident beforehand, others are closed or, or, or secret until the judgment, and then, and then those will be revealed, the counsels of the hearts and all of that. Verse 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and whatever you hear in the uh, ear, preach on the housetops. So believers are to keep on preaching, even though there is opposition. And when he says, you know, what you hear in the ear or what you hear in secret, you're to proclaim from the housetops, I think the idea is uh, if you learn truth from God's word in the secret place of your study, if, you, uh, if you're a disciple, the Lord was going to take his Holy Spirit and give it to them and teach them the New Testament revelation, and they were to proclaim that out to the world. So what they heard in their in their uh, in, in how can I say it, um, prophetic ministry-like, or what uh, we understand from the scriptures were to call out uh, from the housetops, as it were, with a megaphone, with a bullhorn, so that all can hear uh, the truth, no matter the persecution. Now, of course, that will only just drive those uh, infidels even more mad because they don't want to hear it. And they'll redouble their efforts to to do that persecution. But he says in 28, our Lord does, do not fear them. Do not fear them. And why is that? Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. As, As odious as the outcome is to have your body killed, there's one worse outcome, and that is to have your soul killed in hell. In Hades. Rather, Jesus says, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so we're told to, to, we don't fear man because we fear someone else 
worse. Could I say it that way? We fear someone else more, God. Application, that fear is almost entirely absent today. Listen, who in the news media, who in the news media says, you know, as dangerous as climate change is and as dangerous as COVID is, there's something more important that you people in our news audience need to worry about. And that is, there's a God in heaven. And you need to worry about that. There are all kinds of other problems. You know, the nation is crumbling. Afghanistan has, you know, gone to the pits. The southern border is a disaster. COVID is upon us still. The Delta variant, vaccines, and all this sort of stuff, it's all deadly. And, you know, climate change is going to wipe us out in 20 years. And But nobody ever stops to say, you know what, there's something far more important than that. God is on his throne in heaven, and he's going to require it of your soul. He's going to require an accounting. More, far more dangerous for you as an individual and for each and every individual as a society together. Shouldn't you be fearing that? And the answer, or the the word we hear is, is, is nothing. It's crickets. It's silence. Nobody says that except for some of the preachers in our land. Shamefully, even Christians have been carried away into the fears of the world, not taking the Lord's words here seriously. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Even Christians. Remember Peter? He was carried away with that kind of fear, the fear of men. When the Jews came, he stopped eating with the Gentiles. Even Barnabas, Paul says, was carried away into this fear, into this false doctrine. We are fearing something which we suppose may kill the body. Some small percentage of people who receive the disease are killed. We still have no kind of metric on how many are killed by, say, climate change. We do know there are statistics on other diseases and so on and so forth. But instead of all that, we need to fear God, friends. God first and everything else after that. Don't fear those who kill only the body, but God. Verse 29 and 31 through 31 tells us that God cares for us. Let's read it. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So when a sparrow dies, God knows it. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows he cares for you. And he also sees when you're persecuted. In this context, you know, God knows when the sparrow is persecuted, per se, that is when the believer is struggling with persecution, God knows. Exodus 3.7 is called to my mind. God talks to Moses at the burning bush. He says, I've heard the cries of my people. I see their affliction. I know. And although they had to bear long, and he bore long with the oppressors, there came a time of deliverance, of grand deliverance, of devastating judgment against the nation of Egypt and her gods, lowercase g, 
and death and destruction were accompanied by great deliverance for the people of Israel. God saw their affliction, and therefore we need not to fear. We trust that God sees our afflictions as well, has good purposes for us as he allows us to go through them, training us, helping us to grow in the Lord. The Lord now then turns his attention to speak to a matter of perseverance again in verses 32 and 33, perhaps some of the most convicting verses in Scripture. And I know we're hurrying through these, but I want to expose you to them little by little here as we go through the rest of the chapter. 32 says this, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, of course, when you think of this word deny, you probably think right away of Peter. I just picked on Peter a little bit, but we'll mention his case again. Peter denied the Lord, but that was a transient denial. You know what I mean by that? Transient, temporary. It was not his real heart. He did so out of fear, that's for sure, but he uh, came back out of that very quickly. Christians are those who confess Christ before people. They are not ultimately afraid of the Lord's name or ashamed of his confession. Do not be ashamed of the Lord nor of me, his prisoner, Paul said to his young protege. We may have a failure or two or many along the way, but our habit and pattern is to acknowledge Christ that's what Christians do. We persevere in doing that. Uh, if somebody says, you're not a Christian, are you? Well, you have your opportunity right there to say yes or no, or to clam up or say, no, actually, I am a Christian, and I'm not going to back down from that. Be firm. Be strong about that. Now, be ready to explain what you mean by that and give a gospel presentation, a gospel witness, but you know, and I, we, I can help you with that, and we can bolster one another, and that's something of what we do every, you know, every time we get together here. We're encouraging and strengthening each other. Sometimes we talk about uh, things regarding the defense of the faith and apologetics and why you believe what you believe. Um, there's, it's hard, too, to argue against the power of a changed life. You know, um, was that in the bulletin, that devotional, or am I thinking of another devotional? Uh, that I recently received. Atheist comes to town. He's waxing eloquent about how there is no God and all that sort of stuff and how Christians are fools and everything. And an old miner stands up back of the room and gives his testimony and says, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and Jesus changed my life. And everybody in this town knows it because I was, I was a brawler and everything else, and now God is... Save me, cleanse me. You can't argue against a changed life, can you? Yeah, yeah. That uh, that atheist has all kinds of theory, but the miner, the old miner, has some practice <laughs> behind him. Uh, so you can do likewise. You can, uh, you know, in your confession of the Lord, do that. 
the people who confess the Lord are truly saved. The people who do not, in verse 33, are not truly saved. The second group uh, are not just merely guilty of a temporary failing, but they're guilty of a permanent failure. They love the world, not the Lord. Remember James chapter 4 and verse 4, friendship with the world, enmity with God, uh, that, that sort of thing. First John has the same sort of thing. You cannot be friends of the world and friends of God or that sort of idea. And, and this is what this is talking about. So we, I had to face these verses, uh, I'll say, uh, 25 years ago at one point in my Christian walk and think through them and what is he talking about here and where am I at? Without really being you know, in the whole debate about perseverance of the saints or preservation of God and Arminianism and Calvinism and all that sort of stuff. I'm just looking at the verses and I'm saying, do I confess Christ or do I hold back and and not? Am I ashamed of him? And what does that say about me if I am? Or what does it say about me if I dare to confess him even before high academics and uh, people in the technical field with whom I work and that sort of thing. What does that say? So the perseverance and confession of the Lord before men. And God and Jesus says, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. If he's not ashamed of me, I'm not ashamed of him. That's a wonderful thing. The divisions that will bring up the opportunities for you to have to confess Christ are going to be deep, difficult divisions. Look at verse 34. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, I think that statement is maybe sometimes misunderstood. It's not like the Lord came with the express purpose, you know, like delighting in the division or wanting there to be conflict that outcome is simply a side effect of his presence and of his ministry, of his person, of his work. But he says, in carrying on with that idea, ultimately what's going to happen is, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now we're not talking here about, you know, uh, people being against their mother-in-law for natural reasons. (laughs) This is being against family members for reasons of the faith. Verse 36, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. What, what could be worse than being betrayed by your family member? I just, you can't hardly, it's hard to imagine that, isn't it? Your son, your daughter, your father, your mother, your uncle, your aunt, your cousin, you know, betrays you to the authorities. Can you imagine He who loves, verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross daily and, or sorry, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. I just actually accidentally inserted a word from another passage there, didn't I? Scribal error in my talking. Uh, Verse 39, he who finds his, uh, his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So family members will hate one another because of the differences of faith in Christ. We've illustrated that numerous times. You're the choir here, you know that. You have families 
Jewish families, Muslim families, uh, atheist families who, as soon as one of their members becomes a believer, they just write them off and treat them as dead, go on to uh, the rest of their lives. People who choose their family connections over Christ demonstrate that they love the world more than they love God. And this is not a matter of hating your kin. It's not, the Lord's not demanding that you hate your kin. He's talking about a matter of love for him, an, an ultimate and exceeding love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, those people who, are, who have made the decision to follow Christ and have done so with the idea that they're willing to, to give up their life for him, to even die for him. That's what taking up the cross means. It doesn't mean you know, having some burdens, little burdens here and there. It means being prepared to die like a criminal like the Lord did. If you've decided to, to, to give your life to him, to die for him, then you're ready to live. Then you will gain your life. But those who want, say, riches and... They want to cling to this life, will lose it and demonstrate that they're not worthy of Christ. They're not worthy of the Lord. Um, See that in verse 37. Whoever loves family members more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. To me, this reminds me of something we read earlier. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. I just wonder aloud, does that worthy, does that worthy kind of tie into this worthy? In other words, uh, families who are concerned about the things of God more than they are about their own family and kin relationships, those are the kind of families that are worthy, worthy households uh, as, as the Lord sees it. All right, so we've come to the end of the section 16 to 39, which talks about the dangers of the mission. If you dare embark on a mission for God, if you, if you insist, I'm going to live godly in Christ Jesus, what you're going to get is persecution. All those godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I was just reading that in Paul's letter to, to Timothy. I think it's 2 Timothy. Um, that's the danger of the mission. But let's look together at the blessings of the mission in the few minutes we have remaining tonight. The blessings of the mission. Work done for God. This is covered in 40 to 42. I'll read it and then comment. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, now little ones refers to a disciple, only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So what are the blessings of the mission? The blessings of the Kingdom Commission, the blessings of the Great Commission, the blessings of evangelism, the blessing, I think, too, by extension of any Christian ministry, pastoral ministry, deaconing ministry, any ministry in the church, working in vacation Bible school. What are some of the rewards of that or the blessings of that? Well, 
when a messenger is received well by his audience, it's a sure indication that the audience also receives the Lord. And if they receive the Lord Jesus, then they also receive God the Father who sent the Lord Jesus. There's no better feeling then to know that your message has been received, if you're preaching the gospel, it has been received well by the audience because that means those people are accepting of God. And that means God is honored. And that means God is pleased. And the Lord Jesus is honored even as the Father is honored. And you, you really can't get a better feeling than that. That's just a real great feeling to know. And um, I guess you know, I don't want to like make this an overemphasis or something, but like when I'm preaching the word, if there are lots of people who are, you know, amen and nodding and they're with you and they're sitting on the edge of their seat and they're like, yeah, that's exactly right. And you know they're accepting that word. That's a rewarding experience. But if you're in a, like I have been a few times, a funeral or something, a hundred people who are mostly unbelievers, man, it's hard it's hard to hoe that row of potatoes, I'm telling you. You know, it's tough. Um, it just it gets long and you just want to be done with that, that message, you know. Uh, it's difficult. Well, because they're not receiving your message. They're not receiving the Lord. They're not receiving the Father. And it's just a, it's just a oppositional kind of situation. But there's a good feeling in knowing that the message has been well received and accepted in the hearts of the listeners. Those who are receivers of God's messengers, meaning they receive his message, his, uh, the person of the messenger and the message and the message about the Lord and about God, those people who receive such ministers of the gospel will be rewarded. And we can think here of hospitality, for example, of, of financial support, of helping a missionary on their way. If you receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, you'll receive a prophet's reward. If you do the same to a righteous man, you'll receive a righteous man's reward. And you'll get a reward, too, if you offer just a cup of cold water to refresh one of the saints that belong to the Lord. And so now we're speaking about you who would receive the messenger from God, and you ask, well, what, you know, not like what's in it for me, but God doesn't encourage us to think that way, but yet there is a reward for doing good, and he gives it to us here. Now, what is this reward? I think what the Lord is saying is that if you take heed to the message of a prophet or a minister of the gospel, and, and or you help that person, or you help a righteous man, you 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 bless a disciple of Jesus. When he says you receive the righteous man's reward or the prophet's reward, what I think he means is you're sharing in the same kind of reward that they get. If you bless a missionary, if you help a missionary, this gives us warrant to say you will receive the reward like the missionary does. You will share in that reward. And so we often say those who go, uh, you know, they seem like the, uh, the point of the spear. Those that stay back who are the staff uh, or, or the rod of that spear that's thrusting that out into the harvest field or that, 
maybe you could think of it better than a, than a sphere, a spear, maybe a tool, a, a winnowing fork or something like that. And those who stay behind who are supporting the missionary, they aren't on the front line. They're not in the very front of the threshing fork, but they're supporting him. They will receive the same reward like he does as long as they're faithful participants in that. So there's the receiving of a message and there's the participation or uh, assistance of prophets and righteous men and, and little disciples, as it were, and and so on. And I think of Second uh, John, there's an opposite example. In Second John 11, John tells us, those who do not bring the doctrine of Christ that you've learned, do not even welcome them into your home. Okay, these are apostates, these are false teachers. Do not welcome them into your home. Listen, because you don't want to share in their evil deeds. So sharing can be done to share in a reward or it can be done to share in someone's evil deed, not good. And so you want to stay away from that. But there's that idea of sharing. You might say, well, I'm just trying to be hospitable. Yeah, but you're participating with them in the evil that they're doing. And so you're going to be stained by that evil. No one who ministers for God or serves his people or helps them will lose their reward. God is not unfaithful to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name. Hebrews chapter 6, I believe you'll find there. God's not going to forget. But not only will God give a reward in the future, but I think that the good parts of ministry are one of the rewards of the ministry. It's such a blessing to receive a cup of cold water with the care and love that another disciple shares behind it. It's a blessing to see people respond favorably to the work of God by receiving the message and the messenger. So there are blessings kind of built in. There are rewards built in, but then there will be rewards later, God promises. Just as much, and I think we, we perhaps are guilty of overemphasizing, God will punish evil. And it's hard to overemphasize that because it's true and it's a major concern of ours. But just as much as that's true, we need to emphasize God rewards good. The constitution of God is not lopsided where it's all on the wrath side. It's much on the blessing and and, uh, reward or positive remuneration side as well on Sunday afternoon, we spoke uh, for a brief few moments with uh, folks at the Faith in Blue event, and I used some of that theme when I said, you know, the, the thing is that, that the law enforcement under God is a minister meant to, to restrain evil, punish evildoers, and to praise those who do well. But I'm afraid that people see our law enforcement as that lopsided God picture, that everything's on the negative side. Everything's, you know, punishment and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, jail and handcuffs and everything like that instead of seeing the positive side of reward for doing good. And, of course, that's probably true because police spend all their time dealing with bad situations and not too much with good situations. 
You know, you don't call 911 and say, I want to bless a police officer with a good situation. Send him on over. <laughs> you know, it doesn't happen that way. So, well, um, but our God is balanced that way. He punishes evil, yes, but he rewards good. And he is not going to forget your reward. So don't, um, don't think that he will. But do be diligent not to get into a situation where you do lose your reward. That's possible. The scripture talks about that. Be diligent so that you don't lose your reward or become disqualified or that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and, and God will bless and do that for you. Well, the 12 have a hard job, but there are blessings along the way and a superb blessing at the end. Remember that. Not all the blessings come in this life, but they will come. And we are grateful to God for that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we've spent some time looking at the dangers of the mission that, that was assigned to the disciples, the kingdom message. And we've also spent a few moments looking at the blessings of that mission. And, and Lord, as, as those things have similarities to our own age and time in Christian history, help us to take application from them. Help us to enjoy the notion of faithful service will result in reward, and that reward will not be forgotten. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus on that and do that work. Lord, help us too to confess freely the name of Christ among men and be found, like the Lord says, ones who are confessed before the Father who is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.